Let's go back to the war in Ukraine now, though. Again, it's been nearly five months since Russia invaded its neighbor, and the reaction of the West was unlike any seen before. Sanctions on companies and individuals, really an attempt to isolate and punish Russia for its illegal war, the countless human rights violations, the attacks on civilians. And in the early days, there were lots of predictions that this would end very badly for Vladimir Putin. Some that said that he would, but that this would end badly for Vladimir Putin and quickly. Instead, Russia appears to be limping along, making some gains in eastern Ukraine after that disastrous start to the war, managing to avoid complete isolation thanks to support from non-Western allies such as China and Iran and others. And a complete crackdown on dissent inside the country is also keeping a lid on any public signs of discontent. Well, for a better understanding of what's going on in Russia, joining me now is Ian Garner. He's an expert on Russian war propaganda. He's also the author of Stalingrad Lives, stories of combat and survival. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. There's been so much interest of late in just what is going on inside Russia. We're well past four months now into this war. Uh, The sanctions were meant to punish and weaken the country, weaken resolve. But as far as one can tell, it hasn't really happened yet. What is the mood inside Russia uh, vis-a-vis the war right now? Well, the government, ever since the sanctions were introduced, has continually told the population that if you just wait until May, wait until July, wait until August, whenever it is, the date keeps moving forward, all of this will blow over. They're trumpeting the strength of the ruble, which is something they've propped up using the large foreign currency reserves the government has. And they're basically saying there's nothing to worry about. And people on the whole seem to be believing that. They seem to be doing a really good job. I mean, good, of course, being a questionable word choice, but they're certainly doing an effective job of that. So the mood the mood seems to be good. The resolve is strong. And those stories that we're seeing about Russian troop losses don't seem to be cutting through to audiences in Russia. Which is, raises an interesting point, because if, uh, if, if they've made it through this early stage of, of the war in Ukraine, or at least the ongoing war in Ukraine, but if they've made it through this initial, um, call it crunch time, of those sanctions being imposed, one would expect that perhaps they'll be able to carry on. We don't hear much about talk of Putin being ousted anymore these days. No, well, all all of that talk seems to be gone altogether. People seem to have rallied behind Putin. Those who were against the war have fallen quiet. The initial protests we saw in the first few days of the war fizzled out very quickly. The new laws that the government introduced about the, the spreading fake news about the Russian army, and of course, fake would be something that the Russian government would decide what was true and what was fake. Those laws have been really, really effective in silencing dissent. And people, my contacts in Russia, have been, I would say, more afraid to talk, even through encrypted software, encrypted messaging, than they ever have been before. People always feel that the government is breathing down their shoulders and watching what they're doing. And of course, there is a substantial part of the population that always welcomed this and are thanking Putin for realizing an imperial dream they have of bringing Ukraine back into the Russian fold. You've talked about this a lot in your writing, uh, that this to understand Russia's present, you have to look at Russia's past, or at least how Vladimir Putin has reconstructed to some extent the story of Russia's past, uh, heading back to Stalingrad, of course, in the Second World War. But how has that fallen into this? How does that whole narrative play out? And how is it being used to to continue to build or at least maintain support for this war in Russia? 
Well, if we tell the story, and you've got to bear with me here because this is pretty bonkers and it's pretty detached from reality. Throughout history, Russia has been supposedly this sort of messianic force that has saved its neighbors, that has saved Orthodox Christianity time and time again from threats from the outside. And in World War II, it made the greatest sacrifice of all time. And this, this is true, I would, I would argue. 25 million Soviets died, a million at Stalingrad alone, in order to save the world from the Nazi threat. And of course, we can haggle over to what extent was it Soviet Union or the states or the allies, but there is an element of truth in that. And what the government has done then over the last 15 to 20 years is really effectively create what we call in the scholarly world, a cult of the Second World War, in which it's the responsibility of ordinary citizens to kind of relive this sacrifice and go through this martyrdom again. So by painting, as they have done the Ukrainians today as Nazis, and there's really no truth in this whatsoever, despite what you may have read on the internet and some of the rumors that go around social media, what they do is suggest that once again, it's going to be Russia's responsibility to save the world from a fascist threat. And that's really firing up a generation of Russians who've been brought up with this stuff who've learned these stories of their ancestors, who've learned to be kind of part of this cult from quite a young age and are now going off to the front and seeing their husbands and sons going off to the front and welcoming this with open arms because they see this as this sort of historically fated mission that Russia has. One thing I've always found interesting about Russian propaganda is, like all good propaganda, I guess, is how repetitive it is, how much this story is told again and again and again, and through force of repetition uh, becomes gospel to some extent, if you can forgive forgive the use of that word. One of the interesting things that we saw in this war was that in the first few days, the propaganda organs were just as underprepared as the military was and were caught on the back foot by the inability of the military to execute a very quick victory. And they really cast around. They were really struggling for the first week and they tried all sorts of different stories for a week or two, maybe three. And then they settled down on a few key ideas. And that is Zelensky is a Nazi, the Ukrainians are full of Nazis, and Ukraine is controlled by America. And these are old stories, right? These are stories that go back decades and even hundreds of years. Russians were being told stories that foreign powers were controlled by Europeans. And then day after day after day, they just repeat the same old things. And we see that around, in in particular, the atrocities that the Russians are committing in Butcher, the idea that this was a fake, it was a provocation, that actually the Ukrainians did it, they were prompted by the British on the Americans. They did it again last week with the attack on the shopping centre in Kremenchuk. And they did it again, almost word for word, with an attack on an apartment building in Odessa at the weekend. Is it sustainable? depressingly, and this is not the news that we would want to hear, but I think in the short to medium term, yes. I think the centre point of this myth of sacrifice around the war, and this is what I explore in the book around Stalingrad, is the idea that sacrifice isn't something just to be endured. The death of 
sons and fathers is something that has to be experienced. This is at the center of the religion, as it were, that the sacrifice is essential so that the, the country, the culture can be kind of born anew. And as I warned you, this is pretty out there stuff. It doesn't make much sense when you're on the outside of this. But when you're on the inside and you're hearing about those losses, you embrace them. You see them as a part of your belief system. Of course, they're deeply upsetting. But I think Russians will be prepared to tolerate quite a lot more loss than we maybe are giving them credit for. I'm speaking with Ian Garner. He's an expert on Russian war propaganda, the author of Stalingrad Lives or Stalingrad Lives, Stories of Combat and Survival. We're talking about what's happening within Russia four months into this war, how support for the war is still strong, how laws passed uh, to quell dissent have been incredibly effective, how the propaganda machine has found its feet in Russia in telling its story about the uh, the purpose and usefulness of this war to its own people. When we come back, uh, Ian's raised an interesting point about how to engage with Russians who uh, who are fully committed to this narrative uh, and, and to try and at least sell tell them a story built on construction, not destruction, as you point out, as well as recognize the faith that exists there. We'll be back with that. My guest is Ian Garner. He's an expert on Russian war propaganda and author of Stalingrad Lives, Stories of Combat and Survival. We've been talking about uh, just what's going on in Russia. We're more than four months into the war in Ukraine. All the sanctions put into place that were meant to punish and at least force Russia to retreat retreat under a wave of discontent within the country has not really happened as far as we can tell. Protests have stopped near as we can tell. you know, how, how then do you, where where to from here then? It begs the question. Well, this is the trillion ruble question, isn't it? And it is extremely hard to answer. And I can't answer the question, but what I can do is give you a sense of what some of the experts are thinking. Now, if you talk to folks in the Baltic states who are being threatened by Russia, currently rhetorically, even though Russia is actually drawing troops away from the Baltics and away from Finland and Sweden to send to Ukraine because they're taking such heavy losses. Many people from those countries would argue that we've given Russia enough chances. We have tried to engage. We have tried since the fall of the Soviet Union, especially in the first 10 years or so of Putin's rule, to have them at the European table, to allow them to be civilized and decent people, but they've shown themselves incapable of being or embodying the values that we would expect of them. And therefore, the only option is essentially to ring the country off, isolate it economically and diplomatically, to rearm the borders with Russia. And we're seeing some of that with the Finland and Sweden joining NATO. And then as one Estonian politician recently told me in an interview, let them have at it. Just let them go crazy. Let them fix it by themselves. And when they're ready, they can come back. Others might argue, and I know there is some work being attempted within Russia, although it's extremely difficult right now, that we need to engage with people like Russian influencers because the Russian social media spaces are still... They are watched by the government, but they are relatively free. And there are a lot of influential young people, artists, you know, performers, musicians, sports people. 
if we can engage with them and ask them to start spreading more positive messages, might turn the younger generation in particular away from this behavior. And then there are those, and I think I, I would count myself amongst them, who are really flummoxed by this. And are really, even though we're professional Russia watchers, if you can term ourselves that, are really genuinely surprised by the extent of the atrocities that Russia has committed over the last few months. And it is extremely hard talking to my contacts in Russia and outside of Russia to see a path forward when institutionally Russia is so unready to move forward. And psychologically, I think a large chunk of its population is either indifferent to the suffering that it's causing in Ukraine or is actually embracing and encouraging that suffering. None of this sounds like it will bring an end to the war in Ukraine anytime soon, especially with the refocus on the Donbass on the east, uh, where traditionally there was already a very um, put-in-place argument for why those areas should be Russian. Well, in, indeed. I think the argument for why those places should be Russian is very tenuous, as it was with Crimea. And certainly the Crimean annexation should have been conducted in a way very different to how it was done. And the referendum that is often cited as evidence that many people in Crimea wish to join Russia was carried out in a just wildly undemocratic and irresponsible way. There is, there's really no argument around that. But what we are going to find is that this war is going to go on for a long time in some way or another, whether it's Russia seizing those territories and Ukrainians committing or beginning a kind of a guerrilla war in those territories. We're going to see suffering continue as the children and other civilians that have been taken by force by Russia from those areas and deported to Russia as they figure out who they are and where they're going. And what we are going to see is that Ukraine itself, whatever remains of it, is going to be more aggressively anti-Russian than it probably ever has been in its history. And so if we're going to ask to what extent has Putin achieved his goals or can achieve his goals, well, he's made his goals unachievable by staging the invasion because he's united Ukraine against him in a way that would have been unthinkable uh, even a few months ago. And yet it seems he won't pay any consequences, at least not in the near term, for that miscalculation. No, no. And it's, it's one of the frustrating things morally about war, isn't it? That the bad guys can win and the bad guys sometimes do win. And it seems that his hold on power is very secure within the country. And we're more likely to see him die in power or choose to step down from power than be oosted, at least in the near future. Ian Garner, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me.